before we get to the proclamation of God's word, I'd like to do three things to prepare. First, I'd like to greet you with the ancient greeting that Boaz gives to the laborers in the field from Ruth chapter 2. And Boaz is going out to the field. He says, the Lord be with you. And the people in the field respond back to Boaz and also with you, right? Second thing I'd like to do is have a time of silence where we are attentive to what the Holy Spirit would want to do with this time. And the third thing is I'd like to pray for us. So the Lord be with you. Almighty Father, to you all hearts are open, and you truly know the desires of them, the content of our thoughts, what we hope for, what we long for, and what we truly need. We ask, Christ, for your spirit to be in our midst, comforting us and leading us into your truth. Add your holy weight to these feeble words of mine, so that your gospel may be magnified in our hearts for the sake of this world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Have you ever had an experience in your life where your view of reality is totally turned upside down or inside out? Perhaps where you feel like you're in the Matrix or in the Wizard of Oz. Or maybe you had an experience where what made you normal and blend in with the crowd all of a sudden was the one thing that made you stick out. I've had two, two of those type of experiences um, in recent years. The first was after a remote tour in Afghanistan and Kyrgyzstan. And I was a medic in the Air Force, and I was enlisted at the time. And we, I was part of a purple mission with the Army and the Marines, and we were um, doing the same thing. We wore the same uniforms. We ate the same chow halls every day. Uh, we had the same mission. We had the same patience. We did everything the same. We wore the same gear, the same weapons. We did everything the same. And then I came back. I redeployed back to the United States. And I came back alone because the team I deployed with and trained with no longer was with me because I was extended for two months because of my specialty. So I, I was coming back to the airport alone. Military uniform, battle gear, and I'm walking through the airport and all of a sudden I realize people are like staring at me. And I'm actually looking around seeing who they're staring at. And I realize I have all my battle gear and everything and they're looking at me. Kids are looking at me like G.I. Joe and uh, old battle-hardened veterans are coming up to me with an intensity in their voice that humbles me, thanking me for serving my country. <clears throat> what made me anonymous and blend in and camouflage in the deployed environment made me stick out, made me noticeable in, when I came back. Second experience was a little bit different than that. Uh, it was actually the inverse of that. I, I was attending, I got out of the Air Force and attended seminary. And my first week there, I met a man named Michael. And Michael's from this nomadic tribe in Africa, Africa called the Samburu. And they uh, lived up in northern Kenya near Somalia. And we had a great conversation, and at the end of it, he really kind of prophetically, forthrightly spoke that I would come with him and stay with his tribe. And I, I just chuckled and, you know, really wanted to appease him, and I said, sure, Michael, I'll come to Africa with you and stay with your nomadic tribe in a mud hut. And, uh, you know, but the Lord really made a way for that to happen. And I remember flying into Nairobi and driving out of Nairobi, north by northeast, north by north, northeast, 
and the paved roads soon gave way to gravel roads, the plush vegetation, you know, where the coffee and the tea grows soon gave way. It started to look a whole lot less like the Lion King and a whole lot more like another world. And we, we arrived where Michael's community lived. They've been in a drought for years, and um, it was like a different world. And everywhere Michael would take, would take me, we were drilling water wells and doing things, and he would have me preach the gospel and all this stuff. But everywhere we'd, we'd go, I'd come out of the, the, um, the van we were in, and all these people would run up to me shouting, Mazunga, 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 which means white man, white man, white man. And they'd come up to me, and I had a big beard and have hairy legs, and they would pet me like an animal. They, they, never, they, never, saw, they never saw anything like it. And what made me maybe blend in in rural Kentucky all of a sudden made me stick out. It made me not only stick out, but be, become like a celebrity. And, you know, coming back to the States after that time, that summer, I actually had the opposite effect. I was, like, asking why people weren't coming up to me. I got so used to it over there. In today's lesson from Romans 13, Paul tells us that what should make us stick out, what should compel people to come and gather to us, is in our uniforms, is in our jobs, is in the color of our skin or how much facial hair we have. What people should see is not only how we love each other when we're gathered together, but how we love our neighbor when we're apart. This morning, I'd like to look at three aspects from Romans 13 about love. Love's debt, love's fulfillment, and love's timing. And Paul Paul gets right into it in verse 8, right? He says, Owe no one anything, nothing, owe them anything, except to love one another. And all throughout Romans, Paul is building this case of debt, of our debt problem. And he starts in the first chapter. He says, we are, in fact, in debt to the unbelieving world to share the gospel with it. We actually owe the world something, and that's the gospel. And he picks up in chapter 8, verse 12, when he says, we are actually indebted to the Holy Spirit because we can't even live holy lives apart from it. And then in verse 13, we find out in chapter 6 that unfortunately we should pay taxes to the state because we are indebted to the state. And it's this fact of debt that transitions Paul from verse 7, talking about authority to the state, to verse 8 and beyond about love. And he talks like Dave Ramsey in verse 7, saying, don't have any debt in your life, nothing. Don't have any debt. To verse 8, where he says accept this debt to sacrificially love one another. And I'm sure you guys are all intelligent, smart, capable people. You know what a debt is, right? The debt is created when one person receives from another source what they, what they cannot provide for themselves in order that they may live in a state or a condition that would not otherwise be possible. For some, this looks like student loans so they could go to university. For others, this looks like a mortgage so they could own a house or an auto loan so they could own a car. But we're all indebted to God's love. We're all indebted to God's grace, his prevenient love towards us that not only makes salvation possible, but makes loving our neighbors not only possible, but priceless. It's too great. We can't pay it back. It's too great a debt, God's love. Have you ever experienced something in your life, something beautiful or profound or 
transcendental, something that is so compelling, it, it urges you just to have to share it. Maybe it's a bite of food. You ever have a good bite of food? And it's just so good, you say, oh, you've got to try this. Take a bite. Or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a bottle of wine. Maybe it's just perfectly aged and it's smooth and you, you, you know somebody who appreciates it and you say, you have to have this. Maybe it's a place. Maybe it's a piece of artwork. Maybe it's a person. My, my daughter, Anna, I'm always trying to, to show people how great she is. She just fills me with so much joy. But if, if these earthly things could compel us to want to share them with others, how much more should we want to share the uncreated love of Christ? How much more? Love remains a debt because it's a gift from God. Love remains a debt because we remain, remain despite our best efforts, entangled in sin. Do you, do you believe that? I, I, I believe it. Because we, we, say, we say a prayer every Sunday together before we, we come to the Lord's table. And I'll remind you of that prayer. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not what? We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not what? Loved our neighbors as ourselves. Our love for neighbor is only possible by the mercy of God who first loves us. Our love is imperfect and complete. It's not powerful. We, can't, we could hardly do anything with it. But God's love is powerful. It transforms lives. It changes families. As debtors to love, we must abide in Christ's love for us by the power of the Holy Spirit and stop trying to manage love on our terms. But Paul doesn't just stop with our debt. He says what our debt is rooted in what it fulfills. He goes on to say, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Notice, notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, for the one who loves another has replaced the law, or deleted the law, or omitted the law. He says, replaces the law. It fulfills it, it satisfies it. The voices, the pundits of culture out there will try to sell you this marketed version of love that says all you need to do is just love. All you need is love. Just love. Love is all that matters. Love, man. Love. You know, a hippie kind of love. I used to be, I used to, I used to preach that. I mean, when I wasn't a Christian, the definition of love here that Paul is speaking of is antithetical to that. It's the opposite of that. By love, culture will tell you that Love is a subjective, emotional, a positive, or a therapeutic response to a situation that arises. It's, this type of love is driven by self. It's driven by our ego. It says that I, me, is more important than you, the object to be love. Let alone recognizing the source of love, the triune God that makes love possible. Our, our love isn't only... Quantitatively more, we just don't have more of it than the the unbelieving world. We have a qualitatively different love. It's other. It's distinct. When we when we love the poor, we don't just feed them food. We love them with the love of Christ. It's distinct. The culture's idea of love 
is rooted in self. It's rooted in a subjective definition of it could be anything. It could be Taco Bell. It could be your wife. It could be your family. It could be a good fiction novel. It could be anything. It's rooted essentially in lawlessness. Our love, our love as Christians is rooted in the law. It's rooted in law. The, the love Paul's speaking of here doesn't just satisfy desires. It, requi- it fulfills the requirements of God's law. The, the you shall not, right? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. But it, just, it doesn't stop there. The love we're called to doesn't just satisfy these you shall nots. It satisfies a great you shall. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul calls us out of being self-referenced autonomous beings and into a reality where we put people's needs, where we consider people above our own. You, you hear this all throughout Paul's writings, right? And it's hard. It's a hard lesson, right? Philippians 2, 5 to 11, Paul tells us to have the same mind, the same orientation that was in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us things like to die to ourself, to pick up our cross and follow Christ. He tells us in Romans 12 that we are to offer our bodies, soma in the Greek, our entire being as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And when you hear this, if you're like me, you think it's impossible. It's hard. How can we do this? These exhortations are too, too much, Paul. We cannot do this. This is, this, is, this is just an extraordinary event or maybe a subspecies of Christian who can make this happen. But I've seen it every Sunday. Every Sunday since I've been coming to Holy Trinity the past couple months. Every Sunday I come here my, with my family, perhaps you, you notice it too. There is a gentleman always at the door, always holding that door, inviting us in. It didn't matter who we were. He would invite us in. He would have bulletins in his hand letting us know what to expect in worship. This man would have a smile on his face reminding us of the joy of the Lord. This man would always have just like a, a pleasant greeting to give you, ushering you into worship. The way Richard greeted us, the way Richard loved us was distinct from the, wor- the way the world will love you when you walk through her doors. Like an airman returning from war to a civilian airport, or, or like a, a white guy in the middle of a nomadic African tribe, or like Richard greeting saints as they come in the door, our love should stand out. It should be distinct from the world. But Paul keeps going. Paul doesn't let us off. He doesn't just say we're indebted to love. He doesn't just say what love fulfills. He goes on to say, do this. Go and do this. Love like this. It's, it's urgent. Paul goes on to, to say that we are, we are to lay aside the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. To, to lay aside the ways we used to live for the ways we will be living in eternity in the kingdom of God. We're to put on Christ. We're to make no provision for the flesh. We're not to gratify its desires. This is what Paul calls us to. And there's, there's a tension and an urgency in this. Do you, do you, did you pick that up in the reading? There's an urgency between these two ages, between these two epochs of time, between what John and Revelation will say and describe as the fallen Babylon world 
and what Jesus in the Gospels calls the kingdom of God. It's, it's, they're breaking in. We're supposed to live like we will live in the kingdom in the midst of this fallen Babylon world. And Paul says that this salvation is near. He says it's closer now than when we first believed. And this salvation spoken of here isn't just the salvation you pray when you pray the sinner's prayer, the salvation when you ask Jesus into your heart. The salvation spoken of here is cosmic. This is the salvation of Revelation 24 where Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eye, where there will be no more death, where there will be no more suffering, where all things in the universe, not just with human affairs, will be set right as it should. This is a salvation that's coming near. And Paul, Paul says it's, it's closer now than when we first believed. I have a short story, if it's all right, to share with you from, from my time with the Samburu. I, um, I was with Michael, and Michael comes to me and says, we have some partners coming in. We drilled water wells. They, they didn't have access to clean water. And he said, we have some partners coming in from America, from the country of Georgia, Georgia, America. And uh, says it really funny. And uh, I said, okay. And he's like, I have to go fetch them in Nairobi. I, I soon come back. I soon come back. And I'm like, okay, soon come. It's about a day trip, day, day two maybe. And uh, soon come, okay. So Michael takes off, and I'm left behind with what Michael left me with, which was teaching at a primary school, working with pastors, um, just doing whatever was needed in that community. And I'm left with that. I can't communicate with the people. I know very little Kiswahili, and that didn't help me because they spoke a tribal tongue that I didn't know. So um, Michael left. Soon come. Day one, day two goes by. Day three comes, and I'm like, surely this is the day Mike will be back. Surely, you know, I am closer today than yesterday. And still, soon come did not come. And day four comes. And day five is Michael going to come back? <laughs> Seriously, like uh, I, I, I had to catch, uh, you know, I had to catch a flight soon in a couple weeks to get out of the country. I had to go, go back to classes. Soon come, day six. I start freaking out. Okay, do I hitchhike a ride to the nearest city? I don't even know where it's at. And try to call somebody. Who do I call? The embassy? I don't know. I'm in the middle of nowhere. What do I do? Do I do what Michael left me to do and trust him? I was freaking out and I was invited to a prayer service in a language I did not know and I was deeply blessed and I went to bed at peace and I woke up in the middle of the night to a loud southern accent waking me up and I knew Michael soon came when I least expected it in the night. Jesus too will soon come to us. Paul tells us we should be living and loving in accordance with that reality. If you remember from last week's sermon, Reverend Guest calls us back to the gospel. If you remember, the gospel means the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you remember, the good news of Jesus Christ is this, that while we were enemies of God, while we were great sinners, Christ came and died for us. He died for our sin, He died for our sorrow. He died for our hurts, our hang-ups, our handicaps. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, did what he ought to do as a human and did what only he could do as God. 
Namely, he died on the cross for us. He made a new and living way for us in his body and in his blood, through which we have redemption, we have forgiveness of sins, we have the hope of the resurrection. We will have new bodies someday. This will happen. That is the gospel by which we see. That is the only prescription by which we can rightly see reality. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, to stand out in the crowd by doing maybe little things, little things like opening a door with great love that only could come by the Spirit. Put on Jesus Christ as a garment. Be clothed in the reality of the gospel. Remember that God loves you enough to send His only begotten Son. And remember Jesus loves you enough to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Convictor, the One who leads us into truth. This is how we could properly love each other. This is how we could live sacrificially for one another. And we're about to partake of something that I'm happy that we do every Sunday, and that's one reason I'm happy to be an Anglican. As we come to the Lord's table, we come looking forward to encounter Him there in a very true way. And I remember when I was in seminary, my mentor uh, was the, the dean of the chapel, and he'd always tell me that that um, he'd always say, Ryan. He's from Arkansas. I can't do that, that kind of voice. But he'd say, Ryan, whenever you come to the table, you could get as much as Jesus as you want. You could have as much of God as you want. And I was like, that's pretty cool. I remember going to communion shortly thereafter, and I take literally a quarter of the loaf. They had big loaves. I ripped off almost a quarter of it, so much so it, couldn't, it didn't even fit in the chalice to dip. I couldn't even fit it in my mouth. It was so much. It was embarrassing but beautiful because God met me there and he gave me more of himself there than I could have asked for, than I even knew was possible. So when we come to this table in a little bit, come wanting more of Christ than you've ever had, more than you could even fit in your mouth. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.